Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner, and you join us on a hot and summery day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. A little later on in the show today, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord David Blunkett. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to have John O'Sullivan alongside me on the programme. John is the Managing Director at Rosewood Limited, a firm specialised in the restoration and conservation of buildings right here in the capital. John, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us. Good afternoon and uh, thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure, John, for sure. Um, the whole reason we're here is to discuss leadership, of course, and really bring that into focus. Um, but considering that today's generation of business leaders is going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19, it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your business. The, pandic- uh, the pandemic is uh, sort of focused the, uh, the the enormous positive strengths of the people in our company. Uh, it, it's led us to make certain decisions about how we operate and the efficiencies uh, under which we can produce. And it has challenged us to innovate and be uh, highly adaptable uh, and mobile to move with the times that we have come through. Uh, there were at the start of the COVID. Um, it was quite distinct from the government that construction work was to continue, but that wasn't actually plain. So we had to understand that, grasp that metal, and continue to adapt and put in systems in place that would allow us to continue to work and to operate as a company. So. Uh, I must admit, I was uh, absolutely delighted with my team that performed through that period uh, consistently. And so our company was open for business and we, uh, I think we succeeded very well during that initial uh, formative part of the, the pandemic stroke lockdown. And of course, you talked about how you've had to innovate a little bit during this time and be adaptable. Do you think that as we grapple with this new normal that we're going to have to deal with, that there will be sweeping changes to the way that your industry operates as a result of the pandemic? Or do you think that there will be some reversion to normality in a way? Uh, I, don't, I don't think there'll be a, a, a reversion to normality. Um, the, the, the pandemic and the disease is here for the foreseeable future. So we we have to continue to adapt and innovate if, if economically we're going to survive and continue. Um, this sort of first phase that we're going through, these, these sort of six to nine months, is trying to adapt uh, to meet sort of uh, HSE government compliance and guidelines. It also to understand how employees and other suppliers in our chain are operating themselves and, and right down to how we get people to come to work or, or not, as the case may be, depending on their certain circumstances. We certainly could see um, a change in the workplace as we know it. Um, It's been a debate on previous uh, shows that we've done recently, actually, as to whether there is a place for the conventional office environment in the workplace of the future, or whether we're going to see more and more people working from home on a personal basis. So do you think it's going to be sort of a flexible and hybrid model and a combination of the two going forward? 
for, for in the nature of the work that we're doing, we were moving to a more tech-based operation for our surveyors and site staff anyway. So we had that coming through, uh, and it was pretty much in place when the, when the pandemic broke. Um, so there has been a decline in our office environment, but the work is still getting done. I, I, I actually see that there'll be, there will be a city change where people will be working more remotely, but that's not necessarily from home. The technology allows us to do an awful lot of work on site whilst socially distancing and, and meeting all the, the health and safety criteria. But it does mm. mean that the social interaction in the office has declined by probably about 25-30%. And I, I, At the moment, I don't see that changing at all. If we think about social interaction in the context of leadership, I think it's incredibly important for one's mental health. And I wanted to hone in, uh, John, on mental health because it has really been brought back into the limelight by the COVID-19 situation, of course. Just how important is it in leadership to safeguard not just your own mental health, but also that of those around you? Well, we... we Quite early on, we took the uh, positive step to make sure that we spoke to all of our operatives on a on a frequent basis. So the, the, the chunk that were furloughed, we spoke to them I don't know, uh, sort of weekly or, or, or biweekly. Others we spoke to monthly, but we kept in touch with with everybody to make sure that they weren't left isolated. Uh, over time, so their their mental well being, that connection with their their company and their uh, colleagues, is very important to actually keep people uh, in in the same sort of frame of mind that, that, that they are being thought of, and there there are uh, um, people that they can talk to. We did actually have uh, a, a couple of people that you know. Uh, longer conversations were had because you know they they, they were struggling. With the with the lockdown, so I thought that was quite a, an important task for any employer or, or company to actually keep in contact with their people. So we we implemented that. There's three primary directors here, so we implemented that very early on. So you'd say that that sort of transition to leading remotely, leading from a distance, if you will, has been quite a smooth one in your instance. I don't know if it's smooth because you're having a conversation with people over a phone. Mm. Um, and as good as we are, we're not mental health workers. So we try and have general conversations about how things are going, uh, when you're going to come back, how the market is per se, and actually relaying really how we think the market is, which is you know, it's not great. So you have to be, you have to temper it in reality, so that people are aware of, of this moving situation. Um, but I, the, the, in, in, in construction world, those conversations about mental health five years ago just weren't existing. Now mm. it's, it's, it's quite, it's very common, and we do it. We we, we do it as part of our uh, sort of working practice. It is good practice. It is for sure. And mental health is um, a key cornerstone of uh, leadership now. Um, But you say as well that the role of a business leader isn't to be a mental health worker because 
obviously to be expected, you're the executive, you're the director of a business, you're not somebody who is an expert in that realm. So what would you say from your point of view, John, a leader's role actually is? What does that word leader actually mean to you? Uh, I would say it is to show it is to show leadership in the form of direction, clarity, uh, sort of wisdom of choices, and, and uh, actually uh, going out and/or speaking to all of your staff about what you're doing. We we've been to all of our sites ourselves. We've actually met the operatives, we've spoken to them. They know that we are working in the background. We've kept them informed. We're taking them on this journey with us, not blind and informed. So we've issued um, sort of updates of where we are and where we think we're going and what we think is going to happen. So they're, they're all informed, but we have a direction of the path that we think we're going down, mm. that we're going to follow. So you give them clarity and you give them understanding and you give them access back to you to talk if they want to talk. And keeping the communication channels open in that manner, absolutely. not just during absolutely. a crisis, but also in the day-to-day running of a business is absolutely critical. So I can certainly see where you're coming from, from that point of view, John. One thing that the uh, the pandemic has really brought to light is the fact that leaders need to be the people who take on the responsibility to provide direction, inspiration, but also reassurance as well during times of difficulty. However, since we talked about mental health, when people are looking to you as a business leader for that reassurance and that inspiration, it can feel quite a bit of a lonely place, can't it? Because you're the one at the top of the tree and there isn't really anybody else above you to refer to as such. So when you need that inspiration for yourself, where is it that you tend to look out for that? Uh, 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 Leadership can be very lonely sometimes, but uh, I, I personally have had excellent mentors over my career uh, through various uh, various times, and uh, not only that, I'm, I'm actually I'm married, so I, I've got uh, uh, my wife is fantastic. She, she straightens me out numerous times, but I also have excellent uh, staff with me that we can converse freely. We have we have an absolute no politics system in in this office, so you're free to say what you need to say, and there'll be no repercussion about it. So we have that clarity of conversation where people can talk freely. So you can hear what people have got to say. You can digest it. You can think about it, and then you can choose the correct path. So we we take strength from each other as well. Mm. Certainly um, understand exactly where you're coming from, John. It's the fact that there's an equal footing there. There isn't really, um, well, there is an established hierarchy, but it isn't necessarily a hierarchical way of running the business. Everybody feels that they can chip in. Everybody feels that they can share opinions and get involved. And I think when you establish that equal footing, it gives people confidence, doesn't it, to have their voices heard and almost in a way take on leadership for themselves as well. We we have uh, bi-weekly meetings. With, with all of our sort of office-based staff to run through everything. So you can voice your opinion on anything. So it gets heard and it gets respected. So it, it does empower those. But it also allows uh, the leadership and the direction to be given. 
So it, it's not that everybody can run off and do their own things. We have standards and qualities and systems that have got to be followed. And uh, the product that we produce has got to be the best product that we can produce consistently. It's as simple as that. So sometimes we need to reinforce that when people mm. have different ideas. It's fine having a different idea, but it's still got to meet that criteria. So it puts discipline on on us all to actually think, well, okay, what have we got to achieve? That's mm. how we do it. And having reflected on the uh, the last few months, um, it only serves John that we do talk about the future as well. Just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, we know that over the course of the uh, the next twelve to eighteen months, at least, we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and a new way of um, working until we manage to decisively shake off the shackles of COVID nineteen for good, hopefully. But during that period, what do you feel is next for you and for Rosewood Limited? And what are you really hoping to achieve as a business? Um, well, we're contractually obliged to to undertake various projects. So we need to uh, get through them uh, as quickly and as uh, efficiently as we can. The supply chain systems are still broken uh, and the uh, employee chain is still not up to speed. So we are endeavouring to complete our contractual work uh, as, as quickly as we can. In terms of the new work, we're looking to be efficient in the mode that we undertake that work. So whereas our previous systems carried fat in it, our going forward now cannot we're, we're a leaner organization we're a lot uh, a lot sharper on how we actually get to deliver the product because in terms of finance uh most construction businesses that i'm, I'm aware of including my um, our own are suffering financial loss at the moment because we're playing catch-up there is no additional money to play catch-up we just have to suffer the cost and get on with it so that that's what we're doing. Going forward in the future, uh, I think that uh, I'm, I'm generally positive that the, the 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 workload that comes through our way is is sustainable. It is there. We will win our fair share, and and it will uh, continue. I do, however, think that we'll be a smaller organisation, just simply because there won't be the volume of money in the marketplace to do what we or to buy the products that we end up supplying. So, uh, I, I think our future is, is, is on the bun, rosy, but uh, I, I do think we'll be a leaner organisation. Certainly going to be an interesting time for the industry, John, as you say there. And considering that there are still a great many variables in how things may ultimately pan out, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on the programme with us, perhaps in a few months' time, just to see how things have changed um, in the time between. Well, that would be very kind. Yeah, happy to, uh, happy to, happy to help. I certainly would welcome that opportunity, John. It's been a real pleasure for me having you on the programme with us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. Yourself too. Okay. 
I was speaking today to John O'Sullivan, Managing Director at Rosewood Limited in London. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett, the incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary. Um, Lord Blunkett made a name for himself as one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as my colleague enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more 
creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice, obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months, when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members that has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.